Section 23 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter 15 Persons, Part 2. Section 115 The Agents, Beneficiaries, and Members of a Corporation although corporations are fictitious persons the acts and interests rights and liabilities attributed to them by the law are those of real or natural persons for otherwise the law of corporations would be destitute of any relation to actual fact and of any serious purpose every corporation therefore involves in the first place some real person or persons whose interests are fictitiously attributed to it and in the second place some real person or persons whose acts are fictitiously imputed to it a corporation having neither soul nor body cannot act save through the agency of some representative in the world of real men for the same reason it can have no interests and therefore no rights save those which are attributed to it as a trustee for or otherwise on behalf of actual human beings whatever a company is reputed to do in law is done in fact by the directors or the shareholders as its agents and representatives whatever interests rights or property it possesses in law are in fact those of its shareholders and are held by it for their benefit every legal person therefore has corresponding to it in the world of natural persons certain agents or representatives by whom it acts and certain beneficiaries on whose behalf it exists and fulfills its functions its representatives may or may not be different persons from its beneficiaries or these two capacities may or may not be united in the same individuals the shareholders of a company are not merely the persons for whose benefit it exists they are also those by whom it acts in the case of a corporation established for charitable purposes it is otherwise for the beneficiaries may have no share whatever in the management of its affairs the representatives and beneficiaries of a corporation must not be confounded with its members these last are as we have seen the individuals who form the group or series personified by the law and who so constitute the corpus or body of the fictitious person thus created membership of a corporation does not in itself affect in any way the rights or liabilities of the members for it is nothing more than a matter of form a man's privileges and responsibilities in respect of a corporation depend on whether he is one of its representatives or beneficiaries not on whether he is formally accounted by the law as one of its members municipal corporations are constituted by the incorporation of the inhabitants of boroughs but if by statute it were declared that they should consist for the future of the mayor aldermen and councillors the change would not affect the rights powers or liabilities of any human being the extent to which the three classes of persons with whom a corporation is concerned namely its members its representatives and its beneficiaries are coincident and comprise the same persons is a matter to be determined as the law thinks fit in the particular case 
the members of a corporation may or may not be those by whom it acts, and they may or may not be those on whose behalf it exists. It is worth notice that some or all of the members of a corporation may be corporations themselves. There is nothing to prevent the shares of a company from being held by other companies. In this case, the fiction of incorporation is duplicated, and the law creates a fictitious person by the personification of a group of persons who themselves possess a merely legal and artificial personality. Section 116. The Acts and Liabilities of a Corporation When a natural person acts by an agent, the authority of the agent is conferred, and its limits are determined, by the will and consent of the principal. In general, only those acts of the agent are imputed by the law to the principal, which are within the limits of the agent's authority as thus created and circumscribed. But in the case of a corporation, it is necessarily otherwise. A legal person is as incapable of conferring authority upon an agent to act on its behalf as of doing the act in propria persona. The authority of the agents and representatives of a corporation is therefore conferred, limited, and determined, not by the consent of the principal, but by the law itself. It is the law that determines who shall act for a corporation, and within what limits his activity must be confined. Any act which lies beyond these legally appointed limits will not be imputed to the corporation, even though done in its name and on its behalf. It is said to be ultra vires of the corporation, and as a corporate act it is null and void. Speaking generally, we may say that a corporation can do those things only which are incidental to the fulfillment of the purposes for which the law created it. All its acts must be directed to its legally appointed end. Thus the memorandum of association of a company must set forth the purposes for which it is established, and even the unanimous consent of the whole body of shareholders cannot effectively enable the company to act beyond the limits so marked out for its activity. It is well settled in the law of England that a corporation may be held liable for wrongful acts, and that this liability extends even to those cases in which malice, fraud, or other wrongful motive or intent is a necessary element. A company may be sued for libel, malicious prosecution, or deceit. Nor is this responsibility civil only. Corporations, no less than men, are within reach of the arm of the criminal law. They may be indicted or otherwise prosecuted for a breach of their statutory duties, and punished by way of fine and forfeiture. Although this is now established law, the theoretical basis of the liability of corporations is a matter of some difficulty and debate. For in the first place, it may be made a question whether such liability is consistent with natural justice. To punish a body corporate, either criminally or by the enforcement of penal redress, is in reality to punish the beneficiaries on whose behalf its property is held, for the acts of the agents by whom it fulfills its functions. So far, therefore, as the beneficiaries and the agents are different persons, the liability of bodies corporate is an instance of vicarious responsibility, and it is to be justified 
on the same principles as are applicable to the vicarious liability of a principal for the unauthorized acts of his agent principles which will be considered by us at a later stage of our inquiry for although the representatives of a corporation are in form and legal theory the agents of that fictitious person yet in substance and fact they are the agents of the beneficiaries a company is justly held liable for the acts of its directors because in truth the directors are the servants of the shareholders a more serious difficulty in imposing liability upon bodies corporate arises from the following consideration the wrongful acts so attributed by the law to fictitious persons are in reality the acts of their agents now we have already seen that the limits of the authority of those agents are determined by the law itself and that acts beyond these limits will not be deemed in law to be the acts of the corporation how then can an illegal act be imputed to a corporation if illegal it cannot be within the limits of the lawful authority and if not within these limits it cannot be the act of the corporation the solution of this difficulty is twofold in the first place the argument does not extend to wrongful acts of omission for these are done by the body politic in person and not merely by its representatives no fictitious person can do in person what by law it ought not to do but it can in person fail to do what in law it ought and in the second place the liability of a corporation for the acts of its representatives is a perfectly logical application of the law as to an employer's liability for his servants the responsibility of a master does not depend on any authority given to his servant to commit the wrongful act it is the outcome of an absolute rule of law that the employer is himself answerable for all wrongs committed by his servant in the course and process of doing that which he is employed to do i am liable for the negligence of my servant in driving my carriage not because i authorized him to be negligent but because i authorized him to drive the carriage so in the case of the agents of a corporation the law imputes to the corporation not only all acts which its agents are lawfully authorized to do but all unlawful acts which they do in or about the business so authorized the corporation is responsible not only for what its agents do being thereto lawfully authorized but also for the manner in which they do it if its agents do negligently or fraudulently that which they might have done lawfully and with authority the law will hold the corporation answerable section one hundred seventeen the uses and purposes of incorporation there is probably nothing which the law can do by the aid of the conception of incorporation which it could not do without it but there are many things which it can by such aid do better or more easily than would otherwise be possible among the various reasons for admitting this fictitious extension of personality we may distinguish one as of general and fundamental importance namely the difficulty which the law finds in dealing with common interests vested in large numbers of individuals and with common action in the management and protection of such interests the normal state of things 
that with which the law is familiar and to which its principles are conformed is individual ownership with a single individual the law knows well how to deal but common ownership is a source of serious and manifold difficulties if two persons carry on a partnership or own and manage property in common complications arise with which nevertheless the law can deal without calling in the aid of fresh conceptions but what if there are fifty or a hundred joint owners with such a state of facts legal principles and conceptions based on the type of individual ownership are scarcely competent to deal how shall this multitude manage its common interests and affairs how shall it dispose of property or enter into contracts what if some be infants or insane or absent what shall be the effect of the bankruptcy or death of an individual member how shall one of them sell or otherwise alienate his share how shall the joint and separate debts and liabilities of the partners be satisfied out of their property how shall legal proceedings be taken by or against so great a number these questions and such as these are full of difficulty even in the case of a private partnership if the members are sufficiently numerous the difficulty is still greater in the case of interests rights or property vested not in individuals or in definite associations of individuals but in the public at large or in indeterminate classes of the public in view of these difficulties the aim of the law has been to reduce so far as may be the complex form of collective ownership and action to the simple and typical form of individual ownership and action the law seeks some instrument for the effective expression and recognition of the elements of unity and permanence involved in the shifting multitude with those common interests and activities it has to deal there are two chief devices for this purpose namely trusteeship and incorporation the objects of trusteeship are various and many of its applications have a source and significance that are merely historical in general however it is used as a mode of overcoming the difficulties created by the incapacity uncertainty or multiplicity of the persons to whom property belongs the property is deemed by the law to be vested not in its true owners but in one or more determinate individuals of full capacity who hold it for safe custody on behalf of those uncertain incapable or multitudinous persons to whom it in truth belongs in this manner the law is enabled to assimilate collective ownership to the simpler form of individual ownership if the property and rights of a charitable institution or an unincorporated trading association of many members are held in trust by one or two individuals the difficulties of the problem are greatly reduced it is possible however for the law to take one step further in the same direction this step it has taken and has so attained to the conception of incorporation this may be regarded from one point of view as merely a development of the conception of trusteeship for it is plain that so long as a trustee is not required to act but has merely to serve as a depositary of the rights of beneficiaries there is no necessity that he should be a real person at all he may be a mere fiction of the law 
and as between the real and the fictitious trustee there are in large classes of cases important advantages on the side of the latter he is one person and so renders possible a complete reduction of common to individual ownership whereas the objections to a single trustee in the case of natural persons are serious and obvious the fictitious trustee moreover though not incapable of dissolution is yet exempt from the inevitable mortality that afflicts mankind he embodies and expresses therefore to a degree impossible in the case of natural trustees the two elements of unity and of permanence which call for recognition in the case of collective interests an incorporated company is a permanent unity standing over against the multitudinous and variable body of shareholders whose rights and property it holds in trust it is true indeed that a fictitious trustee is incapable of acting in the matter of his trust in his proper person this difficulty however is easily avoided by means of agency and the agents may be several in number so as to secure that safety which lies in a multitude of counsellors while the unity of the trusteeship itself remains unaffected we have considered the general use and purpose of incorporation among its various special purposes there is one which has assumed very great importance in modern times and which is not without theoretical interest incorporation is used to enable traders to trade with limited liability as the law stands he who ventures to trade impropria persona must put his whole fortune into the business he must stake all that he has upon the success of his undertaking and must answer for all losses to the last farthing of his possessions the risk is a serious one even for him whose business is all his own but it is far more serious for those who enter into partnership with others in such a case a man may be called upon to answer with his whole fortune for the acts or defaults of those with whom he is disastrously associated it is not surprising therefore that modern commerce has seized eagerly upon a plan for eliminating this risk of ruin incorporation has proved admirably adapted to this end they who wish to trade with safety need no longer be so rash as to act in propria persona for they may act merely as the irresponsible agents of a fictitious being created by them for this purpose with the aid and sanction of the company's act if the business is successful the gains made by the company will be held on behalf of the shareholders if unsuccessful the losses must be borne by the company itself for the debts of a corporation are not the debts of its members si quid universitati debitur singulus non debitur nec quod debit universitas singuli debent the only risk run by its members is that of the loss of the capital with which they have supplied or undertaken to supply the company for the purpose of enabling it to carry on its business to the capital so paid or promised the creditors of the insolvent corporation have the first claim but the liability of the shareholders extends no further the advantages which traders derive from such a scheme of limited liability are obvious 
nor does it involve any necessary injustice to creditors for those who deal with companies know or have the means of knowing the nature of their security the terms of the bargain are fully disclosed and freely consented to there is no reason in the nature of things why a man should answer for his contracts with all his estate rather than with a definite portion of it only for this is wholly a matter of agreement between the parties section one hundred eighteen the creation and extinction of corporations the birth and death of legal persons are determined not by nature but by the law they come into existence at the will of the law and they endure during its good pleasure corporations may be established by royal charter by statute by immemorial custom and in recent years by agreement of their members expressed in statutory forms and subject to statutory provisions and limitations they are in their own nature capable of indefinite duration this being indeed one of their chief virtues as compared with humanity but they are not incapable of destruction the extinction of a body corporate is called its dissolution the severing of that legal bond by which its members are knit together into a fictitious unity we have already noticed that a legal person does not of necessity lose its life with the destruction or disappearance of its corpus or bodily substance there is no reason why a corporation should not continue to live although the last of its members is dead and a corporation's soul is merely dormant not extinct during the interval between two successive occupants of the office the essence of a body corporate consists in the animus of fictitious and legal personality not in the corpus of its members section one hundred nineteen the state as a corporation of all forms of human society the greatest is the state it owns immense wealth and performs functions which in number and importance are beyond those of all other associations is it then recognized by the law as a person is the commonwealth a body politic and corporate endowed with legal personality and having as its members all those who owe allegiance to it and are entitled to its protection this is the conclusion to which a developed system of law might be expected to attain but the law of england has chosen another way the community of the realm is an organized society but it is no person or body corporate it owns no property is incapable of no acts and has no rights nor any liabilities imputed to it by the law whatever is said to the contrary is figure of speech and not the literal language of our law how then are we to account for this failure of the law to make so obvious and useful an application of the conception of incorporation and legal personality why has it failed to recognize and express in this way the unity and permanence of the state the explanation is to be found in the existence of monarchical government the real personality of the king who is the head of the state has rendered superfluous any attribution of fictitious personality to the state itself public property is in the eye of the law the property of the king public liabilities are those of the king 
it is he and he alone who owes the principal and interest of the national debt whatsoever is done by the state is in law done by the king the public justice administered in the law courts is royal justice administered by the king through his servants the judges the laws are the king's laws which he enacts with the advice and consent of his parliament the executive government of the state is the king's government which he carries on by the hands of his ministers the state has no army save the king's army no navy save the king's navy no revenues save the royal revenues no territory save the dominions of the king treason and other offences against the state and the public interest are in law offences against the king and the public peace is the king's peace the citizens of the state are not fellow members of one body politic and corporate but fellow subjects of one sovereign lord insomuch therefore as everything which is public in fact is conceived as royal by the law there is no need or place for any incorporate commonwealth res publica or universitas regni the king holds in his own hands all the rights powers and activities of the state by his agency the state acts and through his trusteeship it possesses property and exercises rights for the legal personality of the state itself there is no call or occasion the king himself however is in law no mere mortal man he has a double capacity being not only a natural person but a body politic that is to say a corporation soul the visible wearer of the crown is merely the living representative and agent for the time being of this invisible and undying persona ficta in whom by our law the powers and prerogatives of the government of this realm are vested when the king in his natural person dies the property real and personal which he owns in right of his crown and as trustee for the state and the debts and liabilities which in such right and capacity have been incurred by him pass to his successors in office and not to his heirs executors or administrators for those rights and liabilities pertain to the king who is a corporation's soul and not to the king who is a mortal man in modern times it has become usual to speak of the crown rather than of the king when we refer to the king in his public capacity as body politic we speak of the property of the crown when we mean the property which the king holds in right of his crown so we speak of the debts due by the crown of legal proceedings by and against the crown and so on the usage is one of great convenience because it avoids a difficulty which is inherent in all speech and thought concerning corporations soul the difficulty namely of distinguishing adequately between the body politic and the human being by whom it is represented and whose name it bears nevertheless we must bear in mind that this reference to the crown is a mere figure of speech and not the recognition by the law of any new kind of legal or fictitious person the crown is not itself a person in the law the only legal person is the body corporate constituted by a series of persons by whom the crown is worn there is no reason of necessity 
or even of convenience indeed why this should be so it is simply the outcome of the resolute refusal of english law to recognize any legal persons other than corporations aggregate and sole roman law it would seem found no difficulty in treating the treasure chest of the emperor fiscus as persona ficta and a similar exercise of the legal imagination would not seem difficult in respect of the crown of england just as our law refuses to personify and incorporate the empire as a whole so it refuses to personify and incorporate the various constituent self-governing states of which the empire is made up there is no such person known to the law of england as the state or government of india or of cape colony the king or the crown represents not merely the empire as a whole but each of its parts and the result is a failure of the law to give adequate recognition and expression to the distinct existence of these parts the property and liabilities of the government of india are in law those of the british crown the national debts of the colonies are owing by no person known to the law save the king of england a contract between the governments of two colonies is in law a nullity unless the king can make contracts with himself all this would be otherwise did the law recognize that the dependencies of the british empire were bodies politic and corporate each possessing a distinct personality of its own and capable in its own name and person of rights liabilities and activities some of the older colonies were actually in this position being created corporations aggregate by the royal charters to which they owed their origin for example massachusetts rhode island and connecticut a similar corporate character pertains to modern dependencies such as the chartered company of south africa even an unincorporated colony of the ordinary type may become incorporate and so possessed of separate personality by virtue of its own legislation in the absence of any such separate incorporation of the different portions of the empire their separate existence can be recognized in law only by way of that doctrine of plural personality which we have already considered in another connection although the king represents the whole empire it is possible for the law to recognize a different personality in him in respect of each of its component parts the king who owns the public lands in cape colony is not necessarily in the eye of the law the same person who owns the public lands in england the king when he borrows money in his capacity as the executive government of australia may be deemed in law a different person from the king who owes the english national debt how far this plural personality of the crown is actually recognized by the common law of england is a difficult question which is not necessary for us here to answer it is sufficient to point out that in the absence of any separate incorporation this is the only effective way of recognizing in law the separate rights liabilities and activities of the different dependencies of the crown summary the nature of personality persons two types natural legal natural persons living human beings subpoints the legal status of beasts 
the legal status of dead men the legal status of unborn persons double personality legal persons subpoints legal personality based on personification personification without legal personality classes of legal persons one corporations two institutions three funds or estates corporations the only legal persons known to english law subpoints corporations aggregate and corporations sole the fiction involved in incorporation the beneficiaries of a corporation the representatives of a corporation the members of a corporation subpoints authority of a corporation's agents liability of a corporation for wrongful acts the purposes of incorporation one reduction of collective to individual ownership and action two limited liability the creation and dissolution of corporations the personality of the state end of section twenty three